We are uh, studying through the book of Exodus, so if you have your Bible handy, I want you to open your Bible there to chapter 1 of Exodus. Now, last week we started, actually, I did an overview of the entire book, and it was front-loaded, so it didn't give much uh, time to the last few chapters, but we'll get to those later on. So what my desire and plan is tonight is to uh, cover the first four chapters, kind of taking an overview of it and uh, looking at uh, God's people, the enslaved, and how God delivered them out of Egyptian slavery. And um, he called a man named Moses to be his human deliverer. The person who really delivered them, though, was the Lord. Uh, But we're going to look at that uh, in detail as we go through this great book. It is a book of freedom. It's a book of redemption. Uh, it It is a book that has lots and lots of great sermon text in it, and I just am looking forward to uh, sharing it with you this uh, fall on these Wednesday nights. Uh, Point number one in your outline, I'll give you this, and then we will uh, look into the text. Number one, as we talk tonight about the enslaved and their deliverer. Point number one, the suffering of the children of Israel. The children of Israel were in Egypt and they were suffering. So I want to talk to you about that, how they got to Egypt, why they're there, and uh, what God is going to do to help them. So let's look, first of all, I've got uh, just uh, one word in each of the main points, but then I've got some subpoints there that there are no fill in the blanks. So hopefully this will uh, move along pretty well. The suffering of the children of Israel. Who are the children of Israel? Well, they are the descendants. They are Jacob whose name was changed to Israel, and uh, it's Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, as you know. And Jacob wrestled with the angel, the angel of God, the angel of the Lord, changed his name uh, to Jacob. And uh, these are the sons and their families who are in uh, Egypt. So let's look now at verse 1. Now these are the names of the children of Israel who came to Egypt. Each man and his household came with Jacob, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, and Benjamin, Dan, Naphtali, Gad, and Asher. All those who were descendants of Jacob or Israel were 70 persons, for Joseph was in Egypt already. And Joseph died, all his brothers, and all that generation. So who are these Israelites who are in Egypt? They are the descendants of Jacob and his 12 sons. 400 years has passed since Jacob and his family came to Egypt. Now, Joseph was already there, and I know you know the story about Joseph, who was betrayed by his brother, sold. He ended up in Egypt, was thrown into prison unjustly, eventually became the second most powerful person in Egypt. There came a famine in the land, and after seven years of plenty, there were seven years of famine, his family came one day and, and, uh, to buy food to take back to Israel for them. Over the course of several uh, experiences with them and several visits with them, he told them who he was and um, then helped them to get there. So who they are, they are the sons of Jacob. Now then, why are they in Egypt? I want you to hold your place there. Now, in my Bible, I can turn one page back, and I can be in the last chapter of Genesis. So let's look there at Genesis chapter 50 and verse 20. I've already given you an introduction with this, talking about Joseph. This is some of the last words that we have of Joseph when he is addressing his brothers 
who are afraid now because their father, Jacob, has died. They're afraid now that Joseph, whom they had mistreated so horribly some years before that, they're afraid now that Joseph is going to take revenge on them for how they treated him when he was just a 17-year-old boy. But Joseph speaks these words of comfort to his brothers and their families. And he says to them, but as for you, you meant evil against me. That is, they wanted to get rid of Joseph. They were jealous of him because he was his father's favorite. But God meant it for good. What you meant for evil, God meant for good in order to bring about as many as this day to save many people alive. Joseph, by God's grace, was able to see the big picture. He could see that though his brothers hated him and wanted to get rid of him, God was bigger than what they were doing to him. So Joseph, even though he had been mistreated by his own family, mistreated by people in Egypt, was thrown in prison and so on, yet he could see that God sent him to Egypt ahead of his family so that their lives could be preserved. Joseph, by God's grace, had a, had a marvelous perspective on why he went to Egypt first against his will, but in full assurance of being in the will of God. And so that was the main reason now that they are in Egypt, but there's also another reason why God's people are in Egypt. And for that, I want you to turn back to Genesis chapter 15, and I want to read with you just two or three verses out of Genesis chapter 15. This is an encounter that Abraham had with God, and he tells him what's going to happen uh, to his descendants. He has already promised him to give him and his descendants the promised land, the land of Israel, but during some of that process of revealing that to Abraham, here's what God revealed to him in Genesis chapter 15 and verse 13. And God said to Abram, Know certainly that your descendants will be strangers in a land that is not theirs and will serve them, and they will afflict them 400 years. Now remember that word afflict. We'll see it in our text in Exodus in just a moment. They will afflict them 400 years. And also the nation whom they serve, I will judge, that's Egypt. Afterward, they shall come out with great possessions. Now as for you, Abram, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried at a good old age. And indeed he was. He was 175 years old when he died. Verse 16. But in the fourth generation, they shall return here for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. Who are the Amorites? That is a general term for the people who lived in Canaan. They were also called Canaanites. There are several other kinds of uh, tribes and so on that live there. But here God just calls them the Amorites. So eventually, when it comes time for the people of God to enter into this land that God is describing under the leadership of Joshua, they go in and they take over the land, but it's not a, a capricious act on the part of God. He's not just saying, well, I don't like the Amorites, and so I'm going to give this land to my children, the children of Israel. No, he says here very clearly, look at the end again of verse 16, the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. God had sent them messengers. We don't know a lot about how he did it, but he did it. 
he sent messengers to the land of Canaan to tell them that they should repent. They were involved in all kinds of ungodly idolatry and all kinds of immoral activity, and God gave them 400 years to repent. God was very merciful, very long-suffering. But he says here, the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. I'm going to send you to Egypt, going to send your children to Egypt to get them out of Israel, the promised land, so that the, those who live there will have an opportunity to repent. But God in his omniscience knows they won't. So he says the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. God gave those people time to repent. But because they did not repent, when the time came, God sent his own people in there and they conquered the land. So why are these Israelites in Egypt? They're there because God said the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet finished. And so you stay in Egypt until that time comes. And they were there because of Joseph's being in a position of power and could bring his family into Egypt to save many people alive. Okay, now we're back in Exodus chapter 1. We've seen the suffering of the children of Israel, A, who they are, B, why they are in Egypt. And now let's look at, at letter C under point number one, how God multiplied their number. God does multiply the number of the Israelites to the point that the Egyptians become very concerned about it. Look at, uh, with me, if you will, at verse 11. Therefore, verse one, uh, chapter 1 of Exodus, verse 11, Therefore, they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with their burdens. And they built for Pharaoh supply cities, Python and Ramses. But the more they afflicted them, the more they multiplied and grew. And they were in dread of the children of Israel. Now there are more people who are the descendants of Jacob than the Egyptians know what to do with. And they say, the Pharaoh and his advisors say, we can't let this go on. There are too many of them. They're going to overtake us. Or when we get attacked by a foreign nation, the Israelites are going to ally themselves with those who are our enemies so that they will overwhelm us and we'll lose. So we've got to do something about these Israelites and how many, how they are multiplying. God, they took seriously God's command back in Genesis chapter 2, be, be fruitful and multiply. They were multiplying. There are lots and lots of them. In fact, by the time they, we get to this, port, this part uh, in the Bible in Exodus, there are, over, are approximately 2 million uh, Israelites, descendants of uh, uh, Jacob, who are living here in Egypt. No wonder the Egyptians were afraid of them. So they were afflicted because there were so many of them, and yet they kept multiplying. I love this. They, verse 12, the more they afflicted them, the more they multiplied and grew. So that strategy didn't work. So Pharaoh comes up with another one. He says uh, to the midwives of the Israelites, uh, when a woman is about to give birth, uh, then what I want you to do, if it's a boy, I want you to kill that boy. Well, the, the, the midwives refused to do that. They would not do what Pharaoh commanded them to do. So the Israelites continued to uh, multiply. 
Notice, though, what it says here in verses 16 and 17 to describe these midwives. And he said, this is Pharaoh speaking to them, when you do the duties of a midwife for the Hebrew women and see them on the birth stools, if it is a son, then you shall kill him. But if it is a daughter, then she shall live. But the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but saved the male children alive. There is a time when it is right and good in the eyes of God for the people of God to disobey the authorities. This is one of those times. They, they, he instructed, Pharaoh instructed these women to kill these babies. That was the exact opposite of what their job was. They were to help these women bring children into the world. They were not about to put to death the very children they, they had just helped to bring into the world. So God honored them. God helped them. God saw that they were obeying him rather than man, and therefore God uh, looked with favor upon them. And look at verse 20. Therefore God dealt well with the midwives, and the people multiplied and grew very mighty. But then look at what happened. So it was because the midwives feared God that he provided households for them. So Pharaoh commanded all his people, saying, Every son who is born you shall cast into the river, and every daughter you shall save alive. The strategy with the midwives didn't work, and so now he says, throw them in a the river. Throw all these boys in the river. Well, that's not going to work either because God has plans for a man whose name is Moses. So we've seen here in chapter 1, first of all, the suffering of the children of Israel. Now then, look with me at uh, chapter 2, and we're going to see the beginning of their deliverance. Point number two in your outline is the word deliverance, the beginning of their deliverance. What does God do when he wants to deliver his people? He sends a baby. Sounds a lot like what he did later on, doesn't it? When God wanted to redeem humanity, what did he do? He sent a baby. In the case of Exodus, it's a baby called Moses, in the case of the New Testament, in our day, it is a person, a man, a baby boy named Jesus. So when God is about to do something wonderful, when he brings deliverance, he sends a baby. And aren't you glad that uh, this baby, who, by the way, his parents faced something similar as Moses' parents did in his day, when Mary and Joseph, uh, the husband of Mary, when they were, gave birth, when she gave birth to Jesus, you remember the edict of Herod the king, kill all the boys under two years of age. So it was still a bloodthirsty leader on the throne. In Egypt's case, it was in, in Egypt. In the other case, it was in Bethlehem. But the, the desire of the king or the leader was the same, to kill these baby boys. That is the strategy of Satan. And if he can kill people, that's what he wants to do. Jesus spoke about that. In uh, John, uh, in the Gospel of John, where he said that the enemy has come only to steal, kill, and destroy, but I have come that you may have life and have it more abundantly, John chapter 10, verse 10. So we see here that God is sending this baby named Moses. So let's just look a little bit in chapter 2. And the man, a man of the house of Levi, went and took his wife, a daughter of Levi, so the woman conceived and bore a son, and when she saw that he was a beautiful child, she hid him three months. And when she could no longer hide him, 
She took an ark of bulrushes for him, daubed it with uh, asphalt and pitch, put the child in it, and laid it in the reeds by the river's bank. And his sister stood afar off to know what would be done to him. This is Miriam. Verse 5, Then the daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the river, and her maidens walked along the riverside. And when she saw the ark among the reeds, she sent her maid to get it. And when she opened it, she saw the child. And behold, the baby wept. And uh, so she had compassion on him and said, This is one of the Hebrews' children. Then his sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, Shall I go and call a nurse for you from the Hebrew women that she may nurse the child for you, the child for you? And Pharaoh's daughter said, Go. So the maiden went and called the child's mother. So what a great uh, plan that God had there. All along, God is in control. Uh, when uh, Jochebed, who's Moses' mother, saw this baby boy that she gave birth to, she saw he was a beautiful child. Now, you might say, well, doesn't every mother think that their child is beautiful? Well, obviously so. And that's especially true when you get grandchildren as well. You know, I mean, all grandchildren are beautiful or handsome, aren't they? All the grandparents in here said, amen. They are. They're wonderful. They're beautiful. They're great. And, you know, as I've said before, God gives you wonderful blessings as you get older if you have the opportunity to have grandchildren. When you have children, that's wonderful. But, man, when your children have children, man, that is grand. And then when your children's children have children, it becomes great. So it just gets better and better as time goes on. God gave uh, this couple, Amram and Jochebed, gave them this baby boy. Uh, they already had two other children, uh, Aaron and Miriam, older siblings to Moses. But Miriam sees what's happening. She goes up to Pharaoh's daughter and says, you want me to get a Hebrew uh, woman to, to nurse the baby, and she went and got Moses' mother. So God had all of this plan. So God sends a baby to redeem his people. Secondly, or letter B under point number two is Moses. When he becomes a man, he grows up in Pharaoh's household. Moses kills a man, then flees Egypt. That starts in verse 11. It came to pass in those days when Moses was grown, he went out to his brethren and looked at their burdens and saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew one of his brethren. So he looked this way and that. He knew he, what he was about to do was wrong. Why did he look around to see if anybody's watching? He looked this way and that, and when he saw no one, he killed the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. And when he went out, on the second day, behold, two Hebrew men were fighting. And he said to, one, to the one who did the wrong, why are you striking your companion? He said, who made you a prince and a judge over us? Do you intend to kill me as you kill the Egyptian? So Moses feared and said, Surely this thing is known. When Pharaoh heard of this matter, he sought to kill Moses. But Moses fled from the face of Pharaoh and dwelt in the land of Midian, and he sat down by a well. Here's Moses' attempt to deliver the people of God in the energy of the flesh. He has his own idea. He sees an Egyptian mistreating a Hebrew. He says, That's not right. So he looks one way and then the other, kills the Egyptian, buries him in the sand, and thinks that no one knows about it. Obviously, the word gets around. When Pharaoh hears about it, Moses is afraid, and he runs away from Egypt. He kills a man. Can God use a man who is an awful sinner, who would be someone who murdered someone? Can God use a person like that? Of course he can. If that person will repent, acknowledge their sin, put their faith in the Lord, and 
and trust him to lead them. God can use anybody who will acknowledge that they're a sinner, turn from that, and follow after the Lord Jesus Christ. So it doesn't matter what you've done or where you're from or how awful a life you may have lived. It doesn't even matter how good of a life you think you may have lived. You know, some people live such a good life, they think they don't need to be saved. But everybody is separated from God because of sin, and everybody needs to repent, and everybody needs to put their faith in the Lord Jesus. And here is a man who is a murderer, and yet God has a plan for his life. Well, let's skip down uh, to uh, um, letter B under point number two. And we're going to see here that God hears the cries of his people. Look at verses uh, 23 through 25. Now it happened in the process of time that the king of Egypt died. Then the children of Israel groaned because of the bondage and they cried out. And their cry came up to God because of the bondage. So he heard their groaning. And God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. And God looked upon the children of Israel, and God acknowledged them. What a great turn of events right here at the end of chapter 2. God hears them. He remembers his covenant, and he looked upon them and acknowledged them. God is actively going to do something for his children, the Israelites. When, when the Bible here says, uses the word in verse 24, remembered, it doesn't mean God forgot about them. It doesn't mean that somehow they had slipped his mind. What it means is that God was ready to take action. The word remembered there means to think about in order to do something in their behalf. He knew it was time. 400 years had lapsed. He had told Abraham that about the 400 years of the Amorites in Israel, that time has now come. It is rapidly approaching. And so God raises up this man named Moses. He hears the cries of his people, and he is ready to bring them out of Egyptian slavery. God hears the suffering of his people. God sees the suffering of his people. Even as he did then, so does he now. Are you suffering? Do you know someone who is? You may be suffering from illness or financial distress or family problems. You may know people who are like that. You know, this world is full of suffering. You may know several people, as I do, even tonight, who are either in the hospital or at home with COVID or some other serious disease. You may know of people in Afghanistan or know about them, or Nigeria, or Iran, or Iraq, or North Korea, or China, or India, or Indonesia, where being a Christian could cost you your life? Does God take notice of people who are suffering? Yes, He absolutely does. He looks upon the suffering of His people. He has compassion and mercy upon them. And he works on their behalf. He works on our behalf in his time, in his way, and for his glory. Point number three, the call and commission of Moses. Point number three, the call 
and commission of Moses. We start now in chapter 3, and uh, point, or letter A under point number 3 is this. God speaks through a bush. I know you're all familiar with this scene where Moses has uh, gone to a, a place called Midian. There he meets a man named Jethro, who becomes his father-in-law. He marries a wife. They have a couple of sons. He is a shepherd now. For the first 40 years of his life, he lived in Egypt. For the next 40 years of his life, he's going to live in Midian and be a shepherd. He was raised to be a son of Pharaoh. But now he is learning how to lead and how to be a man of God by being a shepherd in a place that is on the backside of nowhere where nobody is watching him. Nobody can see what he does, what he does, but God is building character into the life of this man. May I say a word to you about that? God builds character in secret places. When God is wanting to use someone for his glory, he teaches them, he trains them. He does so in the secrecy and privacy of their own hearts. It doesn't mean they don't have any interaction with other people. It doesn't mean they can't learn from other people. But God works to build character in someone that he's going to use for his glory. So God speaks to him through the bush. We'll read just two or three verses here. Moses was tending, verse 1 of chapter 3, the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian. And he led the flock to the back of the desert and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. That's another name for Sinai, Mount Sinai. Horeb and Sinai are the same mountain. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in the flame of a fire from the midst of the bush. So he looked, and behold, the bush was burning with fire, but the bush was not consumed. It was not being burned up. Moses said, I'm going to check that out. That is weird. So the Lord saw, verse 4, that he turned aside to look, and God called to him from the midst of the bush and said, Moses, Moses. And he said, Here I am. And he said, Do not draw near this place. You're close enough. Take your sandals off your feet, for the place where you stand is holy ground. God is in the process now of calling and commissioning this man who is about to become God's instrument to deliver the Israelites. But for him to be ready to do that, he has to spend this time alone with God on the desert, in the desert, where no one else is around. But then, when he understands what God is calling him to do, Moses makes a bunch of excuses. So we're going to skip down now to verse 11 of chapter 3. After God gives Moses these instructions, Moses begins to say, I, I, you know, I really can't do that. Verse 11, but Moses said to God, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and that I should bring the children of, Is of Israel out of Egypt? In other words, what he's, what he's really in the background of all this is this. God, don't you know what I did when I was in Egypt? I had to leave because I killed a man. Don't you know what I've been doing for the last 40 years? I've just been here tending sheep. Who am I? I'm a nobody. I can't go into the house and to the court of Pharaoh 
and look him in the eye and say, thus says the Lord, let my people go. Who am I to have that kind of power and authority? Well, it's a good question, isn't it? I think anybody that God has ever used has asked himself that question or herself that question. I remember wrestling with that when God was calling me to preach. Who am I to have a calling of God like that on my life? But Moses went on and said, okay, all right. God answered that part of it. He said, well, when I go back to the people and tell them that you sent me, they're going to say, who, who are you? What's your name? And that is found for us down in verse uh, 13. Moses said to God, Indeed, when I come to the children of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they say to me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? So the first excuse or question was, Who am I? second one is, Who are you? What is your name? And God said to him, Go tell them, I am who I am. I am the one who exists. I am the God of existence. God, he just is. He wasn't created. There's never been a time when God did not exist. He existed before this universe existed. He exists outside of time and space. He is God. Tell them, I am who I am has sent you. And then... They talk about that for a while. And then uh, look over chapter 4. Moses answered and said, But suppose they will not believe me or listen to my voice. Suppose they say, The Lord has not appeared to you. What then? What am I going to do then? Verse 2. So the Lord said to him, What is that in your hand? And he said, A rod. Now Moses asked, this question, and he's not prepared for the answer he's going to get. He says, in other words, why should they believe me? I've been gone for 40 years, and if any of them remember me, they're going to remember why I had to leave. Why should they, why should they believe what I say to them? So here's what the Lord says to him. Basically, Moses you're a shepherd. So you've got the tools of a shepherd. What is that in your hand? It's a rod or a staff, a shepherd's staff. He said, okay, Moses, I know what you use that for. And I know that you've been using it for a long time. But here's what you've got to learn. I'm going to show you what you need to learn. Throw down that rod. Throw it down, Moses. So Moses threw it down. And you know what happened. It became a snake. So what does Moses do? He does what most of us in this room would do. He turns around and runs as hard as he can away from the snake. But God calls out to him. Said, Moses, come back and pick up that snake. Yeah. God said that to you, what would you do? <laughs> I hope we'd obey. I hope we would all obey. But it'd be a challenge, wouldn't it? Pick up the snake. Now, if you're going to pick up a snake, you'd probably 
try to pick it up so it couldn't bite you as close to its head as you can. But what did God say to him? Pick it up by the tail. Pick up a snake by the tail. What was God teaching Moses? Moses, you've got the rod, but throw it down. See that it became a serpent because the tools that you have in your hand used only in your strength have the power of the serpent in them. The serpent here is a picture of Satan. You've got to lay down your tool and see what it is and notice and take note of the fact that the best you can do is only a serpent. But Moses picked it up now from the tail. And what happened? He picked it up by the tail that became a rod again. That same rod that was empowered by the flesh, the world, and the devil now is empowered by the Spirit of God. And God would lead Moses to take that rod, which later was called the rod of God, and hold it up at the Red Sea so that the sea would part and the Israelites would go across the Red Red Sea on dry ground. Moses had to acknowledge the fact that the best he could do was unacceptable in God's sight. And then there were some other signs he gave him as well sign of leprosy. When he put his hand inside his cloak, pulled it out, it was white and leprous. He put it back inside, pulled it out again. It was clean and new and fresh. God had to teach them that him that in his heart he was leprous, he was unclean, but with God's cleansing power, he could renew him and restore him and save him and give him the honor of serving the Lord So God took care of that part of him, with him for for that. And then the next thing he said is, look over at uh, chapter 4 and verse 10. He said, um, Moses said to the Lord, Lord, I am not eloquent, neither before nor since you have spoken to your servant. But I am slow of speech and slow of tongue. In other words, here are, here are Moses' excuses. Who am I? Who are you? They won't believe me. I can't speak. Slow of tongue, slow of speech. So what does God say to him? Verse 11. So the Lord said to him, Who has made man's mouth? Who makes the mute, the deaf, the seeing, or the blind? Have not I, the Lord? Therefore go, and I will be your mouth and teach you what you shall say. By this time, Moses realized God has painted him into a corner in the desert. He's run out of excuses. Okay, God, I freely acknowledge you made my mouth. So if you made my mouth, that means you can use my mouth any way you want to. Okay, so then what does does Moses say? He realizes he has nowhere else to turn. So then he says in verse 13, look at this. But he said, O Lord, O my Lord, 
Please sin by the hand of whomever you else may sin. In other words, Lord, I don't want to go. Send somebody else. Well, God had all he could take by that time. So look at, uh, look at verse 14. So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Moses. And he said, Is not Aaron the Levite your brother? I know that he can speak well. And look, he is also coming out to meet you. When he sees you, he will be glad in heart. So God is taken care of. He has addressed every excuse that Moses could come up with. So now, Moses finally agrees to obey what God has called him to do. You know, it would have been better for Moses had he said, when God first said, go back to Egypt to Pharaoh, if Moses had said immediately, okay, you've called me, I'll go. But it's better for us. And probably in the long run, it was better for Moses. Because we have in this passage the description of what anybody might use as an excuse to keep from serving God. And God meets every possible excuse. So let me ask us all a question tonight. How are you doing in serving the Lord? Oh, oh Joe, I, I can't speak. Oh, I, I, who am I? I know the Lord. I mean, I know his name. I know the Lord, but, you know, I, I just can't serve. Well, not everybody's called to be a preacher or a teacher, but we can all serve in some manner. We can all find where God wants us to serve and follow him in obedience. Well, Moses and Aaron go back to, to Egypt, and they come to the people of God there, and let's look at what the response is of the people, and I'm finished when they hear from Moses and Aaron the response of the children of Israel. Skip down to verse 20. Uh, let's go to um, 29. Moses and Aaron went and gathered all the elders of the children of Israel, and Aaron spoke all the words which the Lord had spoken to Moses. See, he's the spokesman. Then he did the signs in the sight of the people. So Moses performed the miracles that God had given him uh, the the uh, rod that turned to a snake and back, and the hand that was leprous and then refreshed. Then he did the signs in the sight of the people. Look at verse 31. So the people believed, and when they heard that the Lord had visited the children of Israel and that he had looked on their affliction, then they bowed their heads and worshiped. Look at these three things that they did. They heard, verse 31, they heard. They believed, and they worshiped. That's what every child of God should do when we hear the Word of God. Hear the Word of God. Believe the Word of God. And that faith should lead us all to worship the one true and living God. Great and mighty is the Lord our God, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, who is worthy of worship and honor and praise and serving him. Do you know him? Are you serving him? Do you love him with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength? Do you love your neighbor as yourself? If you're saved, 
You were enslaved to sin at one time, but you have been delivered from the power of darkness and delivered into the light of the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ. Would you bow with me for prayer? Lord, thank you for your words, alive and powerful and sharper than a two-edged sword. Thank you for how you dealt with Moses. And thank you, dear God, that you still call and commission people to follow after you and serve you. You're still delivering people. You are still looking upon the affliction of your children. You still are mighty to save. You're mighty to deliver. Lord, let us not ever, in the midst of what's going on in our world, not ever be discouraged or downhearted, knowing that though we may face difficulty after difficulty, sometimes, Lord, we may be knocked down, but we're never knocked out. Let us look to you, the author and finisher of our faith, and know, dear God, you're in control and you have a good plan. Lord, if there's anyone here tonight who needs to know you, I pray that they'll repent of their sin, trust you, receive you into their life, and let us rejoice at what you're doing in their life. We pray in Jesus' sweet name. And all God's people said, Amen.